Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 431. Just think what an amazing impact on the world this little 360-acre piece of Surrey did for the world. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, all the way from Surrey in the United Kingdom, Alan Wynn. Alan, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Certainly am, Mark. All right. Great to have you here. Alan Wynn is the director and CEO of the Brooklands Museum in Surrey, England. Brooklands is the birthplace of British motorsports and aviation. Alan is a New Zealander by birth who moved to the UK in 1974, and he joined Brooklands Museum in 1989 as the director. He's a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society and a liveryman of the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators and of the worshipful company of Coachmakers. A lifelong vintage car enthusiast, he's actively driven a 1929 3-liter Bentley, and he's a former committee member of the Vintage Sports Car Club, having served in that capacity for 17 years. He's also an honorary member of the and past chairman of the Aviation Club of the UK. You have been a busy guy, my friend. So, Alan, I've told our listeners a little bit about you. Would you take a moment and share a little bit more about your career, your interests, your passion for automobiles, and that wonderful museum that you're in charge of? Yeah, first thing, uh, Mark, uh, I've actually been at the museum since 2003 as director. 1989 was uh, one of my earlier um, achievements. Um, As you mentioned, I'm a New Zealander. I did a mechanical engineering degree majoring in aeronautical uh, in New Zealand and found I couldn't really find the right job that I really wanted. And so I fled back to university uh, and uh, did a diploma in journalism thinking I would become the world's first uh, literate engineer uh, and trade on that. And that led me uh, into technical uh, journalism. I came to the UK uh, on a travel scholarship in journalism, ended up working on and then running engineering magazines. And um, uh, after a a good uh, time uh, doing that, I ended up 
running a wonderful uh, weekly heavy trucks magazine called Commercial Motor. And three years after that, in 1989, I took over as editor of Flight International, the world's first aeronautical weekly magazine. And uh, for 14 glorious years, I uh, rushed around the place, walking up and down people's production lines, flying their aeroplanes and writing about uh, what was going on in a really exciting aviation business. And at the same time, I was uh, heavily involved in vintage motorsport. Uh, so I had really had the best of both worlds. And then the trustees of Brooklyn's Museum spotted that I was having uh, the best of times uh, <laughs> in, in two different uh, uh, areas. And I was inveigled first in the 90s into taking over as chairman of the Friends Association of Brooklyn's Museum. And I did that for six or seven years before I was looking for a new uh, career at the very point when uh, the trustees wanted a new director for the museum. So in 2003, I moved in here as uh, uh, as director and really the most satisfying job I've ever had. Well, you are having a lot of fun. You've, you're a person who have, has figured out the secret to life. Find your passion and follow it as a career. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done. Yeah, it does limit the amount of time you have to spend uh, keeping your own uh, vintage motor car in order. But um, uh, there's lots of plus points like uh, driving some of the most wonderful cars in the world and experiencing some magic airplanes as well uh, in the job that I now do. So uh, the compensations uh, more than make up for the uh, the distractions of what is an extremely full-time and very demanding job. Oh, gosh, I can only imagine. But, yeah, you are living the life for sure. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a really great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars. Yeah, I know you love to drive, so, Alan, take the wheel. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, it's probably an enormous cliche, and uh, and most of your 436 previous uh, interviewees have probably uh, mentioned the same one. But one quote that has always stuck with me uh, is that famous one, JFK used it, others have, you know, some people see things as they are and ask why I see them as they should be and ask why not. <laughs> and that, that's driven an awful lot of what I've done. But I also have a little personal mantra which helps me in just sorting out uh, what's really important and, and what isn't and what, you, what you're really going to go out on a limb over and what isn't. And that's uh, the great thing, mod moderation in all things, including moderation. <laughs> I love that. And it just reminds you, you know, you're don't rock the boat too often uh, and don't rock it over things that don't really matter. But when they do matter, you go out, and, you know, abandon moderation and go all out for something that's really important and fight that to the death. Well, I love both of those, the quote and the mantra. They're both wonderful. You know, with running a museum that has an incredible history that you've got to bring forth into the future, it must bring immense pressures, but also immense pride. If you think about that JFK quote, how have you incorporated that into your running of the museum and how things work there? As with all things, you have to be very careful when you when you arrive in a new organization, as I did back in, uh, in 2003, and you start looking at things and you say, well, you know, why aren't we doing this here? Why are we doing that? And some of the things that we did very early on was I started asking the question, why are we closed every Monday? And uh, we got people knocking on the door saying, please, can I come into, uh, into your museum? And yeah, and I'm saying, well, you know, we're a tourist attraction. We're here to excite people. 
why don't we have well you know we have mondays off so we can catch up on all the work that we uh, we haven't been able to do during the week and people who've worked over the weekend can have their time off and all that sort of thing i said no let's let's just get rid of that you know people want to come to this museum we're desperate for people to come and pay the entrance fee and come in let's just you know every other museum should be uh, you know, normally is seven days a week let's do that and there are a whole lot of other things you know why why aren't uh, why aren't we running some of our vehicles you know there's vehicles sitting there waiting to be restored not being used as they should be you know when when do our customers ever experience what it's like to travel in some of the cars that we have now some things like the napier railton a 500 horsepower single seater you can't let your public loose in that right but if we've got some sort of nice old cars that we can let people uh, go for a ride in. Let's do that. Let let's let them experience. And you know, wh- one of the things that grew out of that, we couldn't put the uh, collections cars at risk by pounding them around the rough old Brooklyn's concrete continually. But we now have the most wonderful program run by volunteers with vehicles that they look after themselves, uh, where we have a, a bunch of old looking vehicles based on things like MGBs, but made to look pre-war that we take people for rides on the remains of the the, uh, the the Brooklyn's banking with, and we do it on the school holidays. And last year, 14,000 people went for a ride around part of the Brooklyn's banking wow. in an open-top motor car. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that's something where you know, I really felt that there's no point just saying to people, look, there's a lovely big steep bit of concrete. People used to go racing on that. Let's let people see what it was like, experience for themselves what it was like to be up on that banking at 37 and a half degrees top of the banking. Wow. That's a really exciting thing to do, and you don't fall out if you're going fast enough. <laughs> if you're going fast enough. <laughs> We've carried on with that. We're doing things like, because it doesn't give you the complete experience because we're traveling relatively slowly on a fairly short stretch of the concrete. Uh, but then we put in our 4D theater where we let people see what it was like to race in the Napier Railton on that steep banking, doing complete laps at over 100 miles an hour. Feel how rough it was. Feel what it was like. And that's the sort of thing, you know, that, that's what it should be. People should be experiencing. That's why we allow people to sit in the cockpits of our aeroplanes, you know, sit at the controls of the VC-10. It's why we have the world's only functioning Concorde simulator where Concorde pilots teach you how to fly Concorde. Wow. Um, and you're there getting the feel for the thing yourself. Then you really understand. And even with our with our full-size Concorde, uh, our complete aeroplane, unlike a lot of other museums, that's open. So we sell people a half-hour experience, which culminates them sitting in the seats and going for a virtual flight. And that's what I think a museum should be about. And that's, you know, that's what I see. That's what it should be. How can we get there? Yeah, you know, this is absolutely spectacular. And for those listeners out there, I'm sitting here Skyping with Alan, and he's in England. I'm in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. And as he's describing this to me, I see the grin on his face get bigger and bigger and bigger. You are one enthusiastic man. And I I love the aspect of that JFK quote that, you know, see things, why not? That's the great thing about fresh eyes coming into a situation. It's a good lesson for all of us to sometimes stop and sit back and reflect and, and look at how things could be instead of just status quo. Absolutely fantastic. I'm, I'm ready to fly over there and go to your museum today. Sounds like a blast. Would you share a story with me that instigated your personal passion for cars? Is there a pivotal moment in your life as you remember it when you realize, you know what? And I know you're an airplane guy, but I'm a car guy too. Yeah, I think I, I have 
some early memories of traveling around our family motor car was uh, uh, that wonderful uh, humble thing the morris minor huh? uh, my earliest motoring memories are sitting in the back of the morris minor on long trips when i was very very small but i think the first moment where I was really much more conscious of cars being something that were really exciting. And I've always had toy cars and all that sort of thing. But it was going to an early rally organized by the New Zealand Veteran Vintage and Veteran Car Club. And I saw there for the first time, I think I was about eight at the time. It would have been 1958-ish in Picton uh, in the South Island of New Zealand. And I saw my first green vintage Bentley and I was just blown away by this thing there was something about this car you know it just came grumbling across the grass towards us and I just thought wow you know what what a thing yeah because I'd grown up in New Zealand lots of uh, cars lasted forever in New Zealand because uh, they were very difficult to uh, import money was always tight all that sort of thing so cars were uh, tended to be kept for a long time and when I was growing up in the 50s there were loads of pre-war American cars which was sort of quite standard uh, cars that people were still using. They weren't collector vehicles. They were just there because that's what you had. And when I was a student, we had things like Model A Fords and so forth. You know, that was just par for the course. But and this Bentley, even then, was whatever, whatever it was. It was, um, I suppose, thirty years old. But what it was was just this thing that had so much presence and it was so so important. Uh, and and you could just see it, and you, and you sort of felt that yeah. There's really important cars out there, as well as the stuff that you read about in the Observer's Book of Automobiles, you know, the modern production stuff, and you go and look in the showroom windows at the latest Morris Oxford or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, this, this was something really, really special, and you just knew it. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. I love it. Absolutely wonderful. So, Alan, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced along the way in your career. But the most important part of this is how did you overcome that situation? What did it teach you? What did you learn from it? Yeah, I think probably the, the, the biggest challenge I've ever tackled in my career was, uh, was coming here to, uh, to, to Brooklyn's. It, it was a magical place. I was, I was already involved in a way, but... but relatively superficially i i was i was doing my thing as a volunteer for the museum uh, but you don't get to see it warts and all when i arrived in 2003 the museum had just been through a really difficult patch um the whole site had been quite badly flooded at the end of uh, 2000 when the river way burst its banks and then we'd been through um, a change of management all sorts of other competitive pressures had come in. The uh, uh, the then British government had decided it was a really good idea if all the great state museums uh, had free admission. And uh, we're only 20 miles from central London. So if you can go to the Science Museum and the Natural History Museum and the V&A and all those things for free, why do you want to go and pay a fiver to go into um, uh, Little Brooklyn's Museum? When I got here, I found uh, that other than on special days, we weren't really attracting many visitors and we didn't have, uh, we had absolutely no money in the bank whatsoever. So I arrived in the middle of May 2003 and there wasn't enough money in the bank to pay the wages. Um, you know, so that that was a pretty uh, seminal. Wow. Moment. Yeah. And also the company that uh, that provided catering for our cafeteria and hospitality under contract 
Uh, what I didn't know was they'd handed in their uh, the notice and they were leaving at the end of the month. And so I had no, no catering operation, no visitors, no money. That was a that was a pretty frightening starting point. Oh, yeah. And just had to get on to it. We had a fabulous basis here. What, what my predecessors had done with all the volunteers and the staff, they turned a bunch of derelict uh, post-industrial buildings into the into a museum it was here it was functioning uh they'd done a huge amount but it just lacked that essential survivability it wasn't go- it just wasn't going to make the grade unless things happened very very quickly and there was no there was no time to sit down and do all the things that you normally do in business like sit down and do some analysis of what's going wrong get some consultants in sit down and think about it go out talk to your audience uh, do all that sort of research this was real this was real survival right here right now do something or this place just isn't going to be here in 12 months time right and um, you know, no time to sort of really sit down, you know, revamp uh, the staff, revamp the way. We just started doing things, relying quite a lot on gut instinct, but also looking at what other people were doing and trying to look at what we could do that was special. And we came, uh, I came right in at the point when there were some major opportunities uh, offering themselves. Uh, and the probably the biggest one was that British Airways and Air France had just decided to retire Concorde from service. Um, they'd let it be known that museums could apply uh, to be one of the places that uh, the British Airways were going to get rid of uh, what at the time looked like seven Concords. One of the first things I did was bung in an application um, for a Concorde, you know, please give, please give us a Concorde. And we spent the next six months really fighting very hard to persuade British Airways uh, that we should have a Concorde. And there were 800 other organisations who were pitching for these aeroplanes. Wow. We had a very strong case to answer because uh, a third of every Concorde had been built here at the aircraft factories at Brooklyn. Yeah. So there was, and it would be in the headquarters of the, the British end of the Concorde operation. So the real reason uh, why we should have one, but we still had to make the case, especially as they couldn't just turn around and fly one in because we didn't have a runway big enough to take a Concorde. Uh, so that was a sort of massive challenge. Here we were trying to uh, get the thing to the point where we were actually paying our way so that we could pay the wages, open the doors every day, and had this huge project underway to try and A, persuade British Airways to give us a Concorde, and then work out how on earth we were going to get one here if we did get. Oh, my gosh. We were lucky to be honest. So this became a sort of massive battle you just had to really get on and and just do things and uh and this was a real situation i'd been involved in turning around those last two magazines i'd worked for we'd not been making money uh you know, and, the, and the publishers in both cases the publishing companies were looking for a turnaround where we'd really start making progress and i'd found there that what you really have to do in these circumstances is you get stuck in and you do it yourself. You cannot sit in your little ivory tower and issue instructions and bring out bits of paper. You know, the tablets of stone don't work in those circumstances. What you've got to do is get everybody behind you. And you know, in the magazines, that often meant you know, we'd be sitting in the editorial offices at midnight on press night. And you, know, you go out and buy the burgers for the team and you just sit there and get on and do it. Right. And we just had to do the same thing here. Yeah, we just had to get stuck in. So if that meant 
that the director, yes, would be arguing with the bankers and the trustees about where we were going to get the next chunk of money from. But you had to be out there doing things as well and let the volunteers who are the real lifeblood of our museum, we couldn't survive without the volunteers who do all the stewarding and guiding and do most of the restoration work and all that. So you've got to be out there engaging with those people and getting on with it. And that yeah, so it just all of a sudden, you know, I, I'd been told by my then uh, chairman who recruited me to this job that it was absolutely fine. I'd be able to, you could easily do the job of running Brooklyn's Museum four days a week. So I'd have time to carry on doing a bit of the aviation consultancy I'd be doing and that sort of thing. I'd have tons of time to go and race the Bentley, do, do all that sort of thing. And I suddenly discovered this was a, an eight or nine day a week job. Um, and it, uh, I thought I was working hard when I was running Flight International big global spread you know rushing around the world all that sort of thing. that was hard work yeah. this thing was far more time intensive labor intensive really making huge demands on you but it just had to be done yeah roll up the sleeves you know what's that Beatles song eight days a week yep the eight days a week was part-time as far as i was concerned oh my gosh wow what a story well kudos to you and the team obviously behind you and around you that helped make this happen absolutely brilliant wonderful story Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share what I like to call an aha moment in your career when those headlights come on and kind of illuminate your way for this new direction that you have in your mind. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. Yeah, I I think the aha moment, funnily enough, must have been that one where I suddenly realized I just turned down a really, uh, after I'd graduated with my engineering degree, I just turned down the best job offer I was ever going to get as a as a graduate engineer in New Zealand, which was to work for Ford Motor Company as a effectively a graduate apprentice. And and I'd sort of thought, well, I've got to go and do something. I can't just sit here and do nothing because I just I just worked out I wasn't going to fit into the corporate culture of the big uh, the big engineering um, you know, companies like Ford. And I. I went back and looked at the university prospectus to see what I could do because you could get a grant to do another course. And I came across this journalism thing and I thought, oh, that, yeah, that'd be quite interesting. Um, I'll go and talk to them. And, and I went and talked to the tutors and I suddenly realized, and they said they'd never had an engineer do this postgraduate course. It'd be quite interesting to have an engineer do it. Yeah. And I think the aha moment came, I, I was accepted for the course, one of 14 people who were going to do this uh, year-long course. And I sat in the, in, in our little uh, room uh, on the university campus in, in, on the first day of, the, of this course. And I suddenly realized that I was so much better prepared to start out on a, a journalism course than most of the people with liberal arts degrees who were sitting around me. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly thought I could actually, this could actually be not just a stepping stone to maybe ending up in the marketing department of, a, of an engineering company and knowing how to, uh, how to get out and get your message out, but this could actually be something that I could actually enjoy doing for its own, for its own purposes, which is, Change streams, having thought from day one, you know, I was going to be an engineer. My father was an engineer. Uh, my grandfather was an engineer. Um, you know, I thought I was going to be an engineer. Sure. And I suddenly realized I could actually be something different, but still using uh, my engineering. That was the that was the aha moment. Wonderful. Uh, and and I, I was able to then go on, you know, work in engineering uh, magazines, I had a fabulous career going around. It was almost like a a 30-year 
extended university degree, going around and being allowed to pry in other people's businesses and <laughs> ask questions, look under the surface, find out about things. And uh, But it wasn't really till I got here uh, to Brooklyn that I started actually applying my engineering degree head on, you know, into, into burning questions like, how do you take a Concorde apart and put it back together so that it'll be strong again? But up until then, it was this real thing that I'd gone to do something completely different where my engineering knowledge was important, but I didn't have to be an engineer to make my engineering degree worthwhile. Yeah, very cool. Very aha for sure. I I love that. Fantastic. How about proudest career moments? I would assume you've had many over all the years you've been doing everything, but is there one in particular that stands out for you? I don't know. I mean, mean, obviously, uh, when I I come in here most days and I look at what we did last week and think, yeah, wow, you know, we've we've done something more. You know, the day we uh, opened to the public, our reassembled, restored Concord. That was an amazingly proud moment. That was, yeah, re- really something very, very special. Uh, and that was the that was the culmination of a, a sort of three and a half year project. I was immensely proud of that. I was immensely proud of the year back when I was running um, uh, Flight International, and we produced the biggest ever operating profit for that magazine far above what the budget had said. I was in the bad books with the uh, corporate finance director for having produced more profit than we said we were going to <laughs> in the budget because that means that we were really bad at budgeting. Um, but yeah, there, there was something, uh, I, I, and we produced a, a profit that was way, way outside anything that anybody had ever uh, contemplated. And we'd done that by producing the best ever uh, year's worth of weekly magazines. Um, it, it, was a, it was an absolute triumphant year. That was a really uh, good feeling because I felt that you know, I'd taken it. Wa- it wasn't that I was a financier, but you know, if you work for a big corporation, you're there to make profits for the shareholders. That's the, that's the big thing about it. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Well, we decided within the magazine, the only way we could produce great profits for the shareholders was by producing the very best news magazine for the aviation industry. And we proved that in spades. We were on a real roll, you know, and then the industry went into decline a couple of years after that, after 9-11 and that sort of thing. But, but you know, it, it, there was a real period where you know, we were proving that the best way of making money for your shareholders and therefore earning your own bonuses was by producing the best magazine. And we just we just hit the peak. And that that was fantastic. That was a great moment. Absolutely wonderful. I love all those stories. It's really a testament to the basics of business is produce the best work possible and there will be great results because of it. Absolutely brilliant. I love it. Let's have a little bit of fun here. I know you have an old Bentley, but what was your first really special car? I was looking back over this and thinking, what, what was the one that was really defining? Um, yeah, I, I, I bought, uh, as all university students do, you buy some old stuff that you try and keep on the road. And some of them I remember fondly and others I don't. But I think the one that really came special, uh, it wasn't even one that I owned, um, uh, but but it was instrumental in what I, uh, what I was going to do. Um, in 1972, fellow student and I decided we were going to go um, international rallying in a BMC Mini and with a very small team of guys who helped and who got no reward other than being part of part of the helping thing we turned an ex-rental Mini uh, 998cc Mini into a really effective little uh, competition car we started out we did some local rallies in New Zealand and the whole thing was 
driving towards doing the big international rally, the, uh, what was then called the Heatway Rally. Um, and in 1973, we did the Heatway Rally, which was an enormous six-day, three-and-a-half-thousand-mile event, and up against the cream of the world's rally drivers, you know, people like Hanu Mikula and so forth, with works teams. We came 29th overall and second in class in this home-built car, built in Ollie's garage. Yeah, and we, we had created a really effective competition car uh, which was reliable it was fast uh, it was effective yeah, we got a little bit of sponsorship so we could do things and we re- we really did it properly uh, uh, and and it was a, an absolutely triumphant little thing for a, a very humble little motor car in a lot of ways and there were, there were much bigger and faster and uh, and more effective cars but this was something that just really worked in in our context and it, and it became a really really special thing it was the first really major frontline competition that I was involved with. Yes, I've been sprinting and rallying and so forth in, in old bangers, but this was something where we really went out and did something very, very special and achieved great results. Wow. Sounds like a lot of fun. What year was that, Mini? That was 1973. 73. Wow. What fun. Well, how about how about vehicles that you've let go? Is there one in particular that you owned, that you sold, that you really wish you had back in the garage? Yeah, um, uh, and funnily enough, um, uh, uh, I mean, I haven't owned a huge number. I tend to hold on to things for quite a long time. But one thing I, I, I uh, was the first car I ever owned. Um, and you know, if you were a student, I remember my mother being horrified when I bought it uh, because I bought a, an immediate post-war 1950 two and a half litre Riley saloon. It was a lovely you know, coach built thing, absolutely non-ideal for a student to run because it was expensive to run. It needed a lot of work on it and all that sort of thing. I, I got it running. So it, it was a really good car. It was a good fast motor car. I had an enormous amount of fun with it. But I could never afford to get it perfectly restored and set up running properly. So it wasn't just relying on uh, on the, the sort of running bodges that you do when you have no money. And I still look back on it with enormous affection because it was just so much better than all the uh, the other bangers that my student friends were, uh, were running at the time. <laughs> but I would love to have it back and to do a proper restoration on it and have it just as a, as a nice vehicle. It wasn't the fastest vehicle in the world. It wasn't the most exotic vehicle in the world. But to have a car like that again and to and to have one in really good nick that uh, that uh, that you could really realize its potential with um and that that's probably the thing i'd really love to have back i'd love to have back uh, my then girlfriend's ferrari 246 dino as well Ooh, yeah uh, which i had a lot of fun with and i did some competition with it and that sort of thing and it it, it again was a curiously flawed motor cars a car in lots of ways but it was just such a very special thing and uh, you know um yeah if i had room in the garage i'd love to have that back as well yeah i think so the 246 has a place in my heart as well but that o'reilly very very cool very neat old car how about current projects we're into the new year here. What is happening this year, 2016, at the Brooklyn's Museum? We're embarked on the biggest single project the museum has ever done. And it starts off because of the, the, the history of Brooklyn's, as you're probably aware, aviation and uh, motoring coexisted for most of the pre-World uh, War II era. But in, in 1940, uh, when the Second World War was in progress. Brooklyn's was one of the most important aircraft manufacturing sites 
that the Allies had. And in fact, it turned out that uh, over the years, there were actually more aeroplanes completed and flown out of Brooklands than from any other site in Europe. So it was a really, really important aircraft manufacturing site. And Vickers and Hawker, who were uh, assembling and build, building aeroplanes at Brooklands, were just given carte blanche. So just told, take the place over, expand, build more aeroplanes. The Vickers factory was bombed in September 1940. They needed more production space. And so they just bunged up a series of hangars on top of the racetrack with no thought for what was going to happen to the racetrack in the hereafter. There was a bit of flat concrete here. Let's stick a building on it and build Wellington bombers in it. Uh, And so we have always had sitting on top of the finishing straight of the racetrack, right outside the, uh, the, the clubhouse, a big Bellman hangar. What we're now doing is where we're going to take this uh, building apart. Uh, We're going to move it uh, about 100 metres from where it currently sits. Uh, We're going to restore it and we're going to put it back up and we're going to reinterpret it as the Brooklyn's aircraft factory. So we're going to show people how aircraft were designed and built and let them try out for themselves the skills and techniques which were used in building aeroplanes. They'll be able to sit at a design desk and design an aeroplane. They can go down onto the factory floor and try out what it was like to rivet or to machine or to weld or to lay fabric onto a wooden aircraft uh, structure, all that sort of thing. So we're going to do that with this building. At the same time, Uh, We need more space for our aircraft collection and our archives. So we're building a new building that will sit between that and the banking of the racetrack, where on the upper floor, because of the sloping nature of the site, we're going to keep our active aeroplanes, the ones that we can take out and taxi around, run their engines. Uh, And underneath there, there'll be a new training workshop where we can teach volunteers the skills of uh, restoring and maintaining big aircraft collection and some of our motor cars as well. And there'll be a new air-conditioned archive store in that building as well. And then we're going to restore the quarter of a mile of the finishing straight of the racetrack, which is now exposed by the moving of the hangar. Wow. It's a project which is costing over £7 million to do. We started the earthworks uh, back in October. Uh, I came to this interview straight from um, a uh, uh, the, the final selection meeting for the, uh, for the main contractor who's going to do all those building works. So we're underway. We've got a uh, grant from just uh, just under five million pounds from the national lottery here in the UK. Uh, we've had to go out and raise over two hundred thousand pounds, uh, two two million pounds ourselves uh, towards this thing, and we're ninety five percent of the way there on the funding at the moment. Just got a few hundred thousand uh, left to go, and we'll we'll be there. Um, and this the, this project is going to transform what we can do with the museum. It gets our aeroplanes into safe storage. Uh, from where they are, the the old hangar uh, is really leaky. Um, uh, the wind blows through it. We reckon in winter it's colder inside the hangar than it is outside. It's obviously really bad for the objects and the exhibits. It's really bad for the volunteers who look after them and show people around. So we're we're getting this fantastic new facility in which we can look after our our aeroplanes and other exhibits a fantastic place where we can store our valuable archive and we're getting back this wonderful stretch of the racetrack where we can run motoring and aviation events it's it's an enormously powerful thing that we're doing and we're really excited about it we're underway with it right now well congratulations you come a long way baby from those first days that you were there when things looked so bleak this is absolutely wonderful news i just Uh, Brilliant. Uh, Again, kudos and congratulations to you and your team for pulling this all off. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Alan. If you 
were a race car. What kind of race car or car would Alan be? Yeah, um, when I was a kid, I was a Ford V8 quad uh, military truck. Um, <laughs> I loved them. Uh, uh, New Zealand was littered with these things. You know, they, they, they made a nice warbling noise and they went anywhere. And I, I was one of those. I think now um, uh, it's, it's a bit like, you know, um, owners become like their dogs and, uh, and vice versa. I think underneath I'm actually a three litre Bentley. Nice. Um, it, 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 it's a beautifully constructed uh, thing. It's, it's top notch. It's not the fastest. It's not the most competent. It's not the most specialized. But what you can what, what a three litre Bentley can do, you can race it, you can rally it, you can go touring in it. It'll run at 24 hours at Le Mans, but you can get dressed up and, and go out to a fancy dinner. In it. And it's a real top notch motor car. Uh, and it, it's a loyal, faithful servant. It's reliable, and it'll do outstanding things, and it'll surprise people. You can go out and terrify people with a three-liter Bentley chasing people and moderns around uh, around country roads. And I think that's me. <laughs> I think so. That's a perfect answer. I love that. So, Alan, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsor. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over. Congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimball.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Alan, we're back and we're entering the last lap, and I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Yep. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Never turn down the opportunity to drive anything, no matter how humble or or inadequate it is. Go and drive it and try it. It's going to add to your experience. Perfect advice. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? I think tenacity. People around here sometimes get really annoyed with me when I just will not give up on one of my hobby horses. But I think it's really important. You've got you to stick to your guns. And uh, you know, occasionally, yeah, your pet project just doesn't come true. But, yeah, most of the time, if you really, really stick at it and you really irritate people long enough, you can get your way. <laughs> and it's really important that you do that. Yeah, brilliant. Tenacity, very, very important. How about a resource? I know there are lots of resources out there, including the wonderful website that you folks have for the Brooklyn's Museum. But is there one resource you could share with our listeners that you really enjoyed? I think more than anything else, we're, we're very lucky. As you know, the classic vehicle scene in the UK is very, very advanced. And there's some amazing uh, people out there doing things. And we have the opportunity to work with what one of the very, very best. It's an outfit called P&A Wood. They specialize in uh, Rolls-Royce and Bentley restoration work. They, they sell new Rolls-Royces and so forth as well. But they have the, this amazing approach to their business. Uh, they have, their company motto is attention to detail, and they really do it. And they do the most amazing restorations. They work with us, and they look after 
the Napier Railton, which is the most important, exciting pre-war British racing car of them all. Ah, spectacular. Wonderful. How about a book? I know there are lots of great books out there, but is there one you could share with the Karsha listeners you think they would enjoy reading? Back in 2006, we uh, we worked with a wonderful author called David Venables, who, alas, uh, just died recently. And David wrote the definitive history of Brooklyn's across the board. Mm. Bill Boddy, um, you know, the, the, the wonderful uh, motoring journalist who was founding editor of Motorsport, wrote the, the motor racing history of Brooklyn's, just about the cars. But what David did, was right about the motorcycles, about the bicycle racing, about the aeroplanes, uh, about the social scene, about the use of Brooklyn's for filmmaking, all that sort of thing, and created this wonderful book. And every single page is just talking about something that was done for the first time at Brooklyn's, you know, where Brooklyn's did uh, something special was done here. And you see so many things that are still influencing, uh, whether it's motor racing. You know, we're still running the rules for racing on a closed course that were established here at Brooklyn's derived from the rules of horse racing here which is why we have motor racing paddocks why we have clerks of course why we have stewards all that sort of thing and there's all that history whether it's in aviation or motorcycling or bicycling or motor racing that comes from here and David encapsulated that perfectly in this one book the centenary history uh, of Brooklyn's and we've just uh, commissioned yet another reprint of it because it's such an important book and so popular that's the book I want people to read I'll remind our listeners you can find these links to everything that Alan's been so kind to share with us at carsyad.com slash Alan Wynn. His last name is spelled W-I-N-N. All right, Alan, we are up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, but don't worry about the price because I'm going to buy you any car in the world, what would that one vehicle be and why? This is just such a difficult question. <laughs> yeah. I sit, I sit here looking at you wearing your Alfa Romeo uh, <laughs> T-shirt, and I'm thinking, you know, I would so love to have an 8C2300 Alfa, because, you know, again, you can do everything with it, and it makes that wonderful noise. You can race it. You can go touring in it. Of course, um, in ideal circumstances, you know, if, if Brooklyn's Museum didn't now own in perpetuity the Napier Railton, boy, would I love to have that in my garage. And, uh, you know, and, and other people's motor cars, you know, I, um, there's a wonderful car here belonging to a guy called Tim Moore, uh, the Metallurgique Maybach, which was one of the very first aeroplane engine motor cars, which I lust after, knowing again that it would never come onto the market. And so I think, yeah, I mean, all, all these fantasies and dreams, you know, I always wanted an SSK Mercedes-Benz, you know, <laughs> uh, and I still do. And, but I think at the end of the day, um, the thing that I would just live with and love, I love my three-litre Bentley. What I would love is a three, four-and-a-half-litre Bentley. And I and if I had that in my garage, I could do everything I possibly ever wanted to, be competitive, and I would live with that perfectly happily for the rest of my life. Well, there you go. Well, you, you shared some pretty special vehicles there, but uh, I'm glad you were able to narrow that down to that one. So a three, four-and-a-half Bentley. Yep. Very nice. Yeah, spectacular. Well, Alan, you have taken me on a great ride today. I knew you would, and I've really enjoyed talking with you and, and your stories. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yacht listeners and with me. Could you give us all one parting piece of guidance before you drive off down that English country road in your three, four and a half Bentley? 
Yeah, and I think again, it's probably it's probably completely predictable. But if I could get your listeners, your audience, to think about one thing is just think what an amazing impact on the world this little three hundred and sixty acre piece of Surrey did for the world, you know, in so many different areas. And just think of all the amazing people who started off without a book to, to, to go by, without a precedent to go by, and created motor racing as we know it today, created some of the most amazing developments in aviation, did so many other things. And it all came from this one little place here, you know, the Formula One industry that we know now. Really, you can see its roots right back into Brooklands. If I could leave people thinking, yeah, I want to know more about Brooklands. I want to go onto the website, brooklandsmuseum.com. I want to read the book. And I just want to sit down and take inspiration. That's what we're doing with our aircraft factory project. We're inspiring kids of tomorrow, today and tomorrow to sit down and think, what can I do? You know, I could do that. You know, follow your dreams. And Brooklands is the, is the very epitome of people following their dreams and and creating something very special for the world to enjoy. Just take the inspiration of Brooklyn's and go out and do the best you can. There you go. I love that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll do that one again. Got a frog in my throat. There you go. I love that. And for all of us who live so far away and can't get there today, but someday we'll come and visit Brooklyn's, I'll remind everybody that you can find everything Alan's been so kind to share today at carsyad.com on his own show notes page. Just type Alan, A-L-L-A-N, into the search bar. His show notes page will pop up with links to everything he shared, including a link to the Brooklyn's Museum website where you should go and see what you're going to see when you finally take that trek and visit Brooklyn's, which I hope all of you do, including myself. I've got to get over there. Alan, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with our listeners. It's been a really, really grand conversation. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. I'll see you there as well. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.